Welcome to the EcoBot Podcast, where we dive into what matters most for 21st century wetland scientists. Throughout this series, we'll be touching on the increasingly important role that technology plays in our wetland ecosystem, the marriage of technology and the ecosystems that we specialize in at EcoBot. I'm Jeremy Shavey, Chief Scientific Officer and Co-Founder of EcoBot. In today's episode, we'll hear from seasoned wetland mitigation bankers and consulting scientists who are navigating recent changes in wetland policy and take a look at the impact. I remember playing Jenga with my family a few years ago at Christmas. One of my cousins looked at me and he said, hey, this is just like policy. Just keep stacking things up and try to get it to balance and not fall over and keep everybody happy. The only difference is with policy, everything's not shaped exactly the same. So imagine all of the infrastructure that's needed in order to sustain changes in policy and then the implementation or regulation. If you think about it, in respect to wetlands and other waters of the United States, everything is connected. With ecosystems, it's hard to take one thing apart from another. The recent changes to rules around waters of the United States were intended to create a line, a delineation between what is a navigable water and therefore jurisdictional by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and what was not. And that's what we're here to talk about today with Daniel DeJude, Senior Environmental Scientist at Braun Intertech Corporation. Thanks, Jeremy. Clean Water Act was passed in 1972, and the objective stated in the Clean Water Act was to restore and maintain the chemical, physical, and biological integrity of the nation's waters. However, the Clean Water Act did not define waters of the U.S. Congress passed a law that regulated the waters, but they did not define what a water is. So the definition of what is a water of the U.S. has been subject to rulemaking through federal agencies, primarily the EPA and the Corps of Engineers over the decades since the Clean Water Act was passed. And then has also been shaped by litigation, challenging various aspects of the way rules are defined and implemented. Most recently, there's been rulemaking undertaken related to waters of the US. In 2019, the Corps and EPA proposed a new rule redefining waters of the US. They received half a million comments on that proposed rule also in 2019, they rescinded the existing, what was the existing rule of waters of the U.S., and that was called the Clean Water Rule, and that was a rule that had been published and finalized in 2015, so that was formally rescinded in 2019, and then in 2020, in April of that, this year, they published a new Navajo Waters Protection Rule, and that rule became effective on June 22, 2020, so that is now the rule defining waters of the U.S. for almost every part of the country, and I'll get to that, why it's different. Not all waters are created equal. The US Constitution has a commerce clause that gives Congress the right to regulate interstate commerce. And because of that, a whole host of environmental regulations are possible, including the Clean Water Act. So not only is there, there are naval waters, there are tributaries to the naval waters, and those include ephemeral tributaries, ephemeral streams, intermittent streams, perennial streams, and that there are wetlands that are some part of part of the waters of the US and it depends on whether they're adjacent or whether they have a connection and the type of connection. There are also waters that are totally isolated with no surface water connection and there's groundwater. 
So there's a lot of different ways you can define water, a lot of different ways water occurs in the environment. And so those are all different features that become important in regulation under the Clean Water Act. But I want to focus in on the Naval Waters Protection Rule and be really explicit about what this rule covers and what it doesn't cover. There are four things that are regulated water bodies. Territorial seas, traditional naval waters, tributaries, as I was mentioning before, certain lakes, ponds, impoundments of jurisdictional waters, and wetlands adjacent to other jurisdictional waters. So these four things are what is defined as a water of the U.S. So only four things, four types of water bodies are waters of the U.S. Here are the exclusions. The first one, waters or features not defined above. That broadly includes wetlands that are not adjacent to tributaries or to navigable waters. So that's where this rule excludes totally isolated water bodies. Groundwater is excluded and groundwater was never included in any regulations of waters of the US. Ephemeral features are things that only flow briefly, streams, ephemeral streams, not all streams, just ephemeral streams. And I'll talk about more about that in a minute. Then rills, swales, things that are uh, surface water drainage features. And then other things, diffuse stormwater, things in uplands, prior converted uh, cropland, irrigated areas and uplands. And all the exemptions pertain to mostly things that were created, constructed in mostly in uplands, and they were created for a purpose, or they were created as a hole or something, or a pit that was created for mining with no intention of creating a water or a water body or a, or a wetland, or they were constructed for certain purposes, or an artificial lake, reflecting pool, or stormwater ponds. So things like these artificial things, artificially created things and uplands are excluded. They are not waters of the U.S. Okay, adjacent wetlands. We've mentioned that a couple of times. Adjacent wetlands are regulated waters of the U.S. under the current rule of the Clean Water Act. Isolated wetlands are not. So how do you know? How do you determine if something's adjacent or not? So the new rule defines adjacent with these criteria. It's adjacent to A1 through A3 waters. What does that mean? Think back, that refers to traditional naval waters, territorial seas, tributaries, or lakes and impoundments. And to be adjacent, it has to abut the water body or be flooded from that water body in a typical year. And this new rule incorporates the concept of a typical year in terms of hydrology, climate conditions, based on a 30-year rolling average to define what is a typical year. Adjacent wetlands can be separated from other traditional or jurisdictional waters by a natural berm or dune. If they're separated by an artificial barrier, there has to be a direct connection, surface water connection in a typical year. So the important implications of this new rule, this new definition, it eliminates connectivity of wetlands by ephemeral streams. So ephemeral streams are not jurisdictional water bodies and an ephemeral stream is not sufficient connection for a wetland to be considered to be an adjacent wetland. And it also eliminates a case-specific significant nexus. In my presentation of Waters of the U.S., I glossed over about 30 years, 40 years of uh, rulemaking and litigation on Waters of the U.S. Prior to this Naval Waters Protection Rule, there was a Supreme Court case in 2008-2006 that introduced the concept of a significant nexus, which was important for the rules, the way these rules were interpreted and defined up to this Naval Water Protection Rule. So basically, the significant nexus said that for a wetland to be considered adjacent, there has to be a significant nexus that has some impact on the biological, physical, chemical properties of the downstream water. So this new rule eliminates 
case-specific significant nexus concerns. Prior to the Navajo Waters Protection Rule being implemented this year, a water body, a stream was regulated based on if it has a definable bed and bank. So that would distinguish a stream from say a surface water drainage feature, a, a, a swale or a ditch or a, something like that, that does not have a definable bed and bank. So if you could define a bed and bank and you need about 10 minutes of training to be able to recognize a definable bed and bank. If you could define a bed and bank, it was a water of the US. Didn't matter what the duration of stream flow was in that water body. It could be ephemeral, intermittent or perennial. Well, now that difference has taken on an important meaning important distinction under the, the Navajo Waters Protection Rule. The ephemeral stream flows briefly, periodically during a given year in response to snow melt or precipitation. There's no input from groundwater. An intermittent stream flows continuously at certain times of the year, and it may receive groundwater discharge as part of its base flow in certain times of the year. A perennial stream flows year-round. Base flow is maintained by groundwater discharge. So now, rather than defining a jurisdictional stream based on definable bed and bank. It's based on things that are harder to see like groundwater contribution. And there are methods available in certain parts of the country on things to look at to help determine if a stream is ephemeral, intermittent, uh, presence of aquatic vegetation or aquatic life, um, certain characteristics of the, the um, channel and the banks, things like that. But it made this significantly more difficult to determine if a stream is a regulated water of the US or not. Now I'm transitioning to talk about nationwide permits. These are permits authorized by the Corps of Engineers to allow for projects that would impact waters or wetlands. Nationwide permits are a class of permits that are applied to predefined categories with limited, relatively limited impacts to waters or wetlands. There are 52 categories of nationwide permits because the they apply to predefined things with minimal adverse impact. They allow for a streamlined permitting process rather than a, a more involved, longer process um, involving more factors to, to evaluate. So these are this is really the workhorse of the Corps of Engineers permitting program. Lots and lots of activities are permitted with nationwide permits, relatively fast review and authorization. There are several different permits available to the Corps of Engineers. I have a couple of categories of no impact or exemptions, things where there either is no water body present or there's a water body present, but it's exempt. So going back to the slides earlier under the Navajo Water Protection Rule, things that are exempt. So in those two categories, you don't need a Corps of Engineers permit for anything that affects those water bodies. If there is a water body, a stream, water of the US or a wetland that is not exempt, that's affected by a permit, then you would need a Corps of Engineers permit. And the categories or the permits that are authorized with conditions. So you can do a project and there are conditions that apply to it. The middle one that says NWP, no PCN, that's a nationwide permit with no pre-construction notification, also called a non-reporting nationwide permit. And that means you don't need to submit an application to the Corps of Engineers. If you propose a project that's gonna impact wetlands and you meet these predefined categories for minimal impact, you may not even have to submit an application. You can go do your project without receiving a written authorization from the Corps of Engineers, but it's important to remember there are permit conditions that apply to that work. Even though the Corps of Engineers isn't gonna send you a signed piece of paper saying you've got a permit, here are the conditions, you have to know if you're using that non-reporting permit that there are conditions that apply. And then moving down the next level of permitting 
our nationwide permits where there is a pre-construction notification required. In other words, an application is required. And then there's an individual permit. And I've said the nationwide permits are for things that are relatively minor impacts, predefined activities. Individual permit is for anything that doesn't fit into those categories. So then there's no limit on how big a project could be, how much acreage or how many water bodies could be affected. If it's a large enough project, it will go into an individual permit. These are things that require an application. In certain Corps of Engineers districts, there are regional general permits and letters of permission that re may replace nationwide permits in some conditions. But I, I'm providing all this detail in the permitting about nationwide permits because this is important to understand the proposed changes to nationwide permits because they involve both how nationwide permits are defined and then the um, criteria and whether or not a nationwide permit is, is reporting or non-reporting. Typically for nationwide permits, they allow up to half an acre of loss of waters or wetlands. And in certain nationwide permits where streams would be affected, they would allow up to three loss of 300 linear feet of stream bed. And if a project is going to exceed the half acre of impact or the 300 foot linear stream impact, then an individual permit is required. And those have more requirements for documentation, more, thing, more review, environmental review, and can trigger a NEPA review, a National Environmental Policy Act that may require an environmental assessment or environmental impact statement. Nationwide permits were proposed for renewal in September of 2020. They're on a five-year cycle where they're renewed every five years and they were up for renewal in 2022. They will expire in 2022. The Corps of Engineers proposed an early renewal for all the nationwide permits in response to two things, several executive orders proposing directing federal agencies to look for eight ways to reduce regulation, streamline permitting, and foster and enhance economic development, and then some litigation that went to federal and Supreme Court to that affect the implementation or the interpretation of nationwide permits. So the proposal was published in September. I'm going to just hit on a couple of major changes to this, but overall they're proposing modifying nine nationwide permits and creating five new nationwide permits, and I'll touch on those just a little bit. And then there's a lot of tweaking to some general conditions that are relatively minor. And they're proposing to renew all the nationwide permits now rather than some now and then some in 2022. So they would change the five-year cycle from what it was been on to move it up two years. So the big changes that I see with nationwide permits that are proposed are listed here. And I'll admit this is my subjective opinion of what are big changes. There's a proposal on certain nationwide permits to eliminate the 300-foot linear stream impact threshold that would require permitting under an individual permit rather than a nationwide permit. And then nationwide permit 12 is a permit for utility activities, and they are proposing some changes to nationwide permit 12, and they're also proposing two new nationwide permits. So that what's all under the large nationwide permit 12 umbrella now, all utility activities, they would split. So nationwide permit would be reserved for oil and gas activities. A new nationwide permit that they're calling C would be for electric utilities. And the nationwide permit D would be for water utility activities. And just while I'm on this note about the new nationwide permits, the other ones that they proposed are a nationwide permit for water reuse, such as stormwater facilities, and then two nationwide permits that are related to uh, mariculture, seaweed, shellfish, and fish mariculture. So the 300 linear foot stream bed impact, that is a criterion for certain nationwide permits that would, if there's greater than 300 feet impact, 
that would elevate it to an individual permit. And that applies to, I don't know, six or eight existing nationwide permits that pertain to energy development, mining, other types of development. And instead of a criterion that is based on the linear length of the stream, the proposal is to base it on square footage or acreage of impacts. So this is very similar to the way wetlands, wetland impacts are calculated now in terms of acreage, but they would change the threat criteria on a stream impact from linear length of the stream to acreage of the stream. So the nationwide permits that well, they require mitigation for greater than a tenth of an acre threshold, and they have a half acre threshold for individual permits. So that stream impact would be considered the same way, quantified the same way wetlands are quantified. So this may require a little more documentation in the field. If you're a consultant and you're documenting you know, where there may be stream impacts, you know, streams are not uniformly, do not have a uniform width. They vary from place to place. And so then you've got to be able to collect enough data in the field that you can determine what would be that, what would be an impact to that streams in terms of acreage rather than just linear feet of impact to the stream length. So nationwide permit 12, the utility nationwide permit, they're proposing a lot of changes in the PCN requirements. And if you recall, PCN is the pre-construction notification. So it's changes in whether or not an application is required. A lot of utility work takes place in wetlands with no permanent loss of wetlands. They, they excavate, install a pipeline, backfill, restore the original contours, reseed. So there's really no wetland loss. So this nationwide permit allows a lot of activity to happen without notification or without an individual permit, as long as there's no wetland loss or very little limited wetland loss. So a lot of these criteria that would require a PCN or an application are being eliminated from the new nationwide 12. And then the ones that are going to be retained for nationwide permit 12 would be if there's a 10th of an acre loss, if it's work in a naval water, meaning, you know, to a section 10 rivers and Harbor act, you know, traditional naval water involved in interstate commerce or a new oil and gas pipeline that's less than 250 miles. So those are the changes with nationwide permit 12 reporting thresholds. So to summarize, there's significant changes that have taken place to how waters of the US are defined. These thermal ephemeral streams are removed from waters of the US and wetlands adjacent to ephemeral streams are no longer waters of the US. Now, I wanna be clear, that is a rule that has taken effect. There are significant changes proposed to nationwide permits and these are just proposed changes removing the linear impact on stream impacts, fewer notification requirements for utilities and pipelines, several new nationwide permits proposed. The comment period for these proposed changes closed in November 16th. And in terms of the waters of the US, there have been at least 10 lawsuits filed. In my last count, there's over 20 states that are involved in those lawsuits. And so we may wind up with a patchwork across the country of where the NABLA waters protection rule is in effect and where it's not in effect. It's currently on hold in Colorado. A federal court issued an injunction to withhold implementation of the Naval Waters Protection Rule. So it is in effect in all states and territories in the United States, except Colorado. What could affect how that rule is interpreted in the short term is how the uh, new administration, the executive branch, the Corps of Engineers, EPA, the Justice Department views regulation and implementation of the rule and view how they respond to litigation and enforcement actions. So they, they would immediately be able to change direction on how they want to react or approach a case that's in litigation. It's going to take longer for them to issue a new rule if they want to change the Naval Water Protection Rule. 
So that creates a lot of uncertainty about waters of the U.S. because, you know, any day a court, a federal court could issue a ruling saying we, we're going to modify the, the Navajo Waters Protection Rule and modify waters of the U.S. in a given state. It may not apply nationwide. It may apply to just a given state or a group of states. So if you're a consultant or, you know, somebody concerned about water regulation, how do you deal with that? My recommendation is you document every water feature, every polygon that you define on the landscape, and then you document information about that. Think back to the definitions I gave you about waters of the U.S. and the exemptions of the waters of the U.S. So those are the criteria that you need to think about to help determine if a water body is regulated or not. So things like connectivity, the duration of stream flow, or the origin of a water body or a basin. Those are things that are gonna be important to make that determination. This is where tools like Ecobot and a lot of tools from Esri provide an opportunity to document that in the field and then to maintain that in a database. So if there is a rule change, you can just go back and you can update your maps or report that shows what you, you know, where things are isolated or not, how they're connected or, or not connected. And that's you know, a way you can deal with the uncertainty. So you've got the information, you can react very quickly if the rules change in relation to litigation. And as always, I recommend early discussions with regulators, especially if you have, you know, complex situations for uh, wetland determination or jurisdictional determination. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, really appreciate that. Uh, thanks for taking us through that complex group of information there. It's now my pleasure to, to introduce Victoria Colangelo, who's going to discuss the impacts of changes to wetlands and mitigation banking. Thank you so much. Well, I'm honored to be a part of this very impressive panel. Thank you so much to EagleBot for inviting me to show my perspective as a uh, mitigation representative and Florida perspective as well. So a little bit about me. I've been selling mitigation credits since 2004. I've specialized in selling credits. And then most recently, about two years ago, I started selling mitigation banks, the land with the credits. So I've been very successful in doing both, connecting the buyers and the sellers of mitigation banks. And then of course, with selling mitigation credits, connecting developers and consultants with the appropriate mitigation options. So I've had a fantastic career so far, and I'm very, very blessed to be in this industry. This industry fell in my lap when I was a senior at UCF, and I was called in for an interview. I wasn't even looking for a job. And so I worked my way up from intern to president, and four years ago, I started my own company, and it's been absolutely a blessing. So just to give you a little bit of uh, input on my perspective of these policies with regulations, as you know, and as Daniel pointed out in his presentation, the new navigable waters protection rule limits the extent of federal regulation, rescinding the 2015 clean water rule that Obama placed. And as you may or may not know, this all stemmed from the 1988 Rapanos versus U.S. ruling, where it was an 18-year court battle and Justice Scalia and Justice Kennedy both had different opinions. And Justice Scalia had an approach of reducing the wetland impacts. And hence, there was this ambiguity for so long. And in 2015, Obama was able to put those increased restrictions on isolated wetlands and open waters in the United States. And so now with this new regulation that just happened in June 22nd, now it's more easier for developers and environmental consultants to be able to have clarity 
and know exactly what will require federal mitigation and which won't. So, you know, I, I perceived it as a, a good step moving forward and it would increase, you know, the permitting timelines because I've seen it, you know, expand from two to seven years to get a permit. And so, however, what I've seen in talking with many environmental consultants throughout the state of Florida is that it's taking, you know, two to six months after they submit their JD request form, which um, if you go to that form on my website under resources, mitigationbankinginc.com, you can see the form that you can download and email to the core and wait on a response and then move forward with your planning. Fortunately for states like Florida, Michigan, and New Jersey, we have state oversight. So regardless, those isolated wetlands are being mitigated in the state of Florida. And so that's great. And there's, it's estimated that EPA suggested that there's about 85% overlap. The state and federal agencies, 85% are navigable waters. And so it doesn't make much of a difference. And so the 15% or so are isolated wetlands that are still being regulated by the state. I haven't seen much less federal mitigation needed yet. I have about 130 credits reserved right now that are pending closing and only, and out of all those projects, only, you know, 0.6 credits, one project doesn't need the federal as they anticipated because of this new rule. And I'm sure more will come, but right now I'm only working on, you know, one project out of about 50 or 60 different projects. So, and that's on the um, East coast of Florida. So a lot of interesting perspectives on, you know, the WOTUS rule and how this will, you know, affect moving forward with permitting. Like was stated before, who knows, you know, this is, this will probably should be challenged again. Um, it's going to take a lot of effort and, you know, they're going to have to have a defensible argument, require evidence of how this would be modified if this were ever to be rescinded again and open up the process. But I'm assured that that wouldn't happen if, even if we started today for, you know, three to four years. So um, a lot of projects are moving fast so they can get grandfathered in, get those JD forms in, that way you are set. All right, next policy change I want to talk to you about is specific to Florida. You may or may not live in Florida, you may not, you know, be affected, but Florida is one of the prestigious premier wetland mitigation areas in the country. They are currently looking into to be able to shift the Clean Water Act Section 404 from the Army Corps of Engineers to the Florida Department of Environmental Protection. And what that would mean is all projects um, except Section 10 will be shifted over to FDEP to regulate. And so currently the Corps, you know, is just working on those big priority projects and going to shift everything to FDEP. FTP if it's approved. And so that's going to be an interesting challenge for us, I think, you know, to be able to have those resources. And DEP is confident. Like I said, they have an 85% overlap. So they're like, we're already working on these projects. Might as well streamline it. DEP will manage it at first. And then once they get the process together, I understand that they'll start flowing it to the five different water management districts in Florida who primarily oversee the wetland impacts on the state side. DEP just does individual family homes and linear projects. So I guess they feel like they can put some more on their plate 
and alleviate the core of those responsibilities. So I think that's really interesting because, you know, it may be the wave of the future for other states as well to take back their, you know, regulations so that when these federal nuances happen with isolated wetlands, the state still uh, maintains a regulation over the isolated wetlands and therefore they're not just being left out and not being compensated for. Mitigation banks will continue to be permitted by the Army Corps of Engineers. They will not go to FDEP. So that was good. And we're excited for the changes, good or bad. It's going to be interesting. I know Michigan did that, changed over from the Corps to the, the states. And I'm not sure if they've been successful with that program. I put it in a couple calls, but I haven't heard back yet. And I, I, I'd like to pick their brain on their perspective. And like I said, New Jersey has a state program, but I'm not sure if they've navigated over there as well. So it might be an emerging trend. Florida, you know, of course, is the forefront of the industry because we have a lot of wetlands. And I think that's it. Thank you again so much for listening to me with my perspective. Thank you for listening to the Ecobot podcast. In the next episode, we'll wrap our conversation about navigating policy changes with Jeffrey Pearson. And here's some of the panel's responses to the Q&A. If you like what you heard, take a moment to rate, review, and follow along on any podcast app, including the one you're using right now. If you'd like to see how Ecobot can transform your natural resources consulting workflow, find us on LinkedIn or visit ecobotapp.com. I'm Jeremy Shavey, and I'll see you next time on the Ecobot Podcast.